Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. So it was in 1991 that we started talking with Les on the phone, but it was five years before he was able to work out a gig here in Chicago. Remember how excited we all were? You were our producer at that time. Yes, Paula. that's right. And he said, I'm coming to Chicago. And we could hardly believe it. We just Because even after all these years of talking to him on yeah. the phone and developing a good friendship with him, we'd never met him in person. Right. And uh, Paula, you had wonderful conversations with him off the air as well for the, those times that you would call him and ask him if he would do the show with us. Absolutely. And I spoke with Russ as well, his mm-hmm. son. Right. He's a wonderful guy, too. And and so in, in 95, he comes to the House of Blues. 96. At, excuse me, 96, five years later, uh, five years after we had met him and had numerous probably we have 50 hours worth of interviews with him over the years but and i can still remember walking into the house of blues and just my impression the first time i saw him up on stage and Mm -hmm. saw him playing and i just thought even after all these years of talking with him i thought that's Les Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of a pinch me moment. And this was a case of he told us on the air in, in preparing to come to Chicago that he was going to come over and do the show afterwards. Well, again, Paula was our producer. She was there in the audience. We were there. We were out on a school night. That was huge for all of us to, you know, to come downtown to a show early and then know that we were going to go stay up all night on the radio. Now, to, to set it up, after his House of Blues show, he was supposed to do... Kind of a, a meet and greet for uh, for Gibson Guitars with uh, a lot of dignitaries. And, mm-hmm. and Paula, you want to fill us in on the rest of the story? Well, sure. If I could back up first sure. was whenever I went over there initially to meet Russ and Les. Mm-hmm. So I did. I headed over to the House of Blues and my brother Joe was with me. So I spoke to a fellow there at the House of Blues, a representative and employee, and I said, Hi, I'm Paula Cooper. I'm with WGN Radio. I'm supposed to you know, meet with uh, Les Paul and his son, Russ, and he's going to be coming over to WGN for an interview after the show. And he says, well, they're eating dinner right now. So I said, well, where's that at? And so I looked around, and I saw them, Russ and Les, but I didn't want to bother them. So I gave them a little time, and I looked around. And whenever I came back, I saw that the table was empty. So then I saw the same fellow, and I said, oh, I said, can you tell me where they went? And he said, oh, they went to their room. They retired, and I don't think they're going to be interested in doing the interview with you. So I smelt a rat, because I had (laughs) talked to Russ beforehand, and we had made arrangements to meet there. So I started looking around, and I saw Russ, and I said, Russ, I said, I'm Paula Cooper with WGN Radio. He held out his arms, and he pulled me to him, gave me a hug, and he says, we've been wondering where you were. And that's where I knew that mm-hmm. guy was fibbing to me. Mm-hmm. So this is whenever I get my brother Joe, and I said, you know, Russ, this is my brother Joe. Would you mind? He's going to be driving you over to the radio station after the concert. Would you mind if he just kind of sticks with you? And he says, not at all. So I took Joe to the side, and I said, don't let anyone pull you away from them. You make sure you stay <laughs> close to these guys, mm-hmm. and they get to the radio station. Uh-huh. And he did. Yeah. So then after the show, my brother helped load Russ and Les's guitars and that beautiful black guitar of his mm-hmm. into his car. And there were lots of people. It was exactly like Mike said and Tommy said. Everyone said that he meeted and greeted everyone, everyone. Yep. there. And he felt bad, you know, yeah. that he couldn't stay and meet everyone. Mm-hmm. So then they drove over here. My brother was going to try to bring him down on Lower Wacker, you know, in Lower Michigan. And so my brother 
got turned around and he said, oh, Les, I bleeped up. And he said the bad word. Uh-huh. And he realized what he said and he apologized. And Les said to him, and he goes, listen, kid, don't worry about it. I bleep up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe managed to bring him up here to Upper Michigan uh-huh. Avenue. Mm-hmm. And that's where he was brought into the studios. And that's where he stayed. As you know, until all night, all yeah, night all long, night. for over three hours. It snowed and, that and it was night. Yeah. And then there were the three kids. I yeah. think they were on their way back to Michigan or well, Wisconsin. No, they were from Wisconsin. Remember, yeah, they, Wisconsin. Yes, they couldn't get in the House of Blues because they were too young. And then they heard yeah. less on the radio, yeah. and they turned around and yeah. they came back here to the radio. So they're station. driving in this snowstorm, mm-hmm. going north back home, and they were bummed because they wanted to meet Les Paul, and they had to be under twenty-one because they didn't let him in the House of Blues. So they got down back down to the radio station and they thought well you know what we'll just take our chances and see if we park the car if we can maybe get to meet him and they stood around out in the tribune lobby for hours and i guess a security guard felt sorry for them actually it was aubrey mumpower the engineer that night and aubrey came in and he said hey they're these kids you know, he goes, let's bring them in. So we took them in over to what is now the green room. It was the music room or mm-hmm. something at the time. And that's where they stayed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then they mm-hmm. got to listen and mm-hmm. not just stand around in the cold. And so they listened. And then we told Les that there were a couple of kids that had come down from Wisconsin. And boy, that's all he needed to hear. And remember, they had two guitars. They did. And the one guy opened up his guitar and he said, would you please sign my guitar, Mr. Paul? And he said, And that sure. was a Gibson. And it was a Gibson guitar. And he signed it. And he said to the other kid, well, what about you? And the kid sheepishly kind of shuffled around. He said, well, it's a Fender guitar. He said, give it to me. And he opens up the guitar and he says, yep. And he signs it boldly across the front of the guitar and he hands it back. And he says, now you got a Les Paul. <laughs> and the kid yep. was so happy. <laughs> I love that story. And that was the same night that, unbeknownst to Steve, I had purchased this beautiful Black Beauty, right. uh, Les Paul Black Beauty. And I'd had the back of it prepped so that the varnish had been taken off so that it could be signed. And we had a a gold uh, paint pen, and Steve was just so high off of being in the presence of Les that we were able to to steal him away. You took him back uh, into one of the office areas. But then Les decided to sign just the the back of it, the little plate on the back. Right. And as he said... In case uh, I decided I didn't like him like sometime, him. I could just take the plate off the guitar and replace yeah. it. Like, so that's going to happen. I had the whole back ready for him to just boldly sign it, and then we were going to revarnish it. And he just put it on this little, uh, like, six-by-six six square plate mm-hmm. that you screw off. And can, he said, well, then he can just, you know, replace it. But remember, he practiced with a pen on a couple of sheets of paper. And, uh, which we still have. And, uh, Paula saved Paula. them. And uh, it was a nice Christmas gift. We have uh, uh, Les's practice he, he and he what tossed he, him in the garbage he tossed it in the garbage and i saw him do that and boy i got that out really quick and i said well i'm saving that because he was practicing his yeah. signature and for I your love, guitar i love that that he would sit there yeah. and yeah. he'd done a show did a meet and greet sat here with us for hours and then he's sitting back there and he's just so meticulously practicing with this pen to get it just right so he could he could sign the back of the guitar well let us take you back now to that mm-hmm. uh, the cold december night in 1996, and uh, this was the first time that we had met Les face-to-face in the studio. When he walks in the room, all of the guitar players just say, We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. And we had the pleasure of seeing him at the House of Blues tonight, and he was nice enough, after a long day, to come on over to the studio. Les, it's a real pleasure to meet you in person. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Thank you for being here. 
What a great show tonight. Oh, it was. Thank you. You know what? I was, I was just listening to that, and if it wasn't for Mary, I wouldn't be here. Believe oh. me. Oh. Believe me, if it wasn't that way. And the interesting thing is, is that started here in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's so wonderful. I'm just daydreaming here. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking back how wonderful it was when I was at the St. Lawrence Hill Hotel, mm -hmm. Mary and I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Mary, all the way driving, says, but what if it doesn't work? I says, it'll work. It'll work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was the invention of the sound-on-sound -sound tape machine. Yeah. Is that right? At the St. Lawrence Hotel. Now, was that? Am I right or wrong on this, that that kind of stemmed from a gift that you got from Bing Crosby? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Bing just came over to the house, and he said, because I talked him into the tape machine, he said to me, I got a present for you out in the, in the car. So I walked out with him, thinking it was going to be Kraft cheese or <laughs> Philco radio, and he lifted the trunk up, and it's a tape machine. We carried it in the backyard, and he says, now, play with that. And so I was recording on in my garage with two disc machines, and Mary was hanging the laundry up on the line outside. And I said, Mary, I got it. I got it. And I had it written out on an envelope, how to make sound-on-sound, sound, multi-track recording on one tape machine. We got in the car, drove to Chicago with the tape machine in the trunk, and she says, what if it doesn't work? And by the time I got to Illinois, I was sure it wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary scared me to death. We're at the New Lawrence Hotel. And the fourth head come in from Ampex. They didn't know what it was for, but I said I blew a head. I needed another head. And I, got, I didn't want to tell anybody my invention may not work. And Mary says, what do you want me to do? And I said, just say one, two, three, four, testing. One, two, three, four, testing. I says, well, then go hello. So she went, hello, 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 hello. hello. <laughs> And we played it back, and it said, one, two, three, four, testing, hello, hello, hello. I threw my crutch in the air because I'd had an automobile accident, and I was a mess. I threw the crutch in the air, and we danced around the room in the new Lawrence <laughs> Hotel. That's on Lawrence Avenue. Mm. Right. And we cheered and hollered how great it was. We went to work at the Blue Note with the great thing that the tape machine could do, multi-track recording. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was very exciting. Right here in Chicago. Now, before that, uh, you had been recording sort of direct-to-disc? Yes, and two it, disc machines. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way you were doing it then was you would sort of do one, then you'd have to record another, but if you made, like if you were into the eighth generation, you, you okay. made a mistake. You could, you, could, you could just go back one. Okay. But with the tape, the sound-on-sound sound tape, mm -hmm. that invention was a little rougher. You could do everything on one little tape machine, but not little, it was big. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem was, is if you make a mistake, if a, we recorded a basement, how high the moon was in the basement in Jackson Heights, right next to a fire department. Mm -hmm. So the alarm would go off and dang, 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 and the sirens go off and we blew how high the moon. Went the second time, a plane goes to land at LaGuardia, we're dead. Start over at one. And the worst part was that Mary had to sing the last parts first. Otherwise, you lose in the generations okay. down. Mm -hmm. So Mary sings the fifth part first. I play a line that's unimportant, a rhythm part, a line that's unimportant. And as we work our way to the end, 30 takes, yeah. then we're playing the melody. 
and the bass lines, the most important parts. Mm -hmm. By the time we get there, if we make a mistake, it's back to one. Those days are gone. So slash whoever Uh playing the guitar. George Benson may take a year. Eric Johnson may take 10 years Mm -hmm. to get it correct. Mm -hmm. We had to do it in two hours. How High the Moon took two hours. Do you recall what song you did the most uh, overlays on? Yes, one that wasn't released that I made for Bing for one of his uh, shows, radio shows. Mm -hmm. It was called Night and Day. Mm. Never released yet. It's still sent home. 37 parts. Mm. Why was it never released? It just wasn't as good as some of the other things. How High the Moon set a capital for a year. And they didn't think it was commercial. Hmm. Hmm. And the president said, listen to it. Somewhere there's music, how high the moon is. Doesn't it make sense? <laughs> I says, well, Anita O'Day sang it. It made sense. Well, they weren't listening to the lyrics. Well, what makes you think they're going to listen to the lyrics now? So I said, why don't you put it out? It took a year. And finally, they decided to put it out. And, and Jim Conklin came to Chicago and wired me from Chicago and said, you got to hit. Hmm. And Dave Garraway was the one that broke Lover, broke many of the hit songs for us right here in Chicago. But you weren't really surprised when How High the Moon became no, a no, hit. No. What, what about the, what, what's a song that comes to mind that when you were told it's a hit, you said, what? It is? Oh, Nola. Nola? Yeah, yeah, a guy come in my backyard. He says, can I try my accordion? I says, okay. So he goes, so I go to bed that night and I says, you know, he's playing that too fast. He should go, so you can walk to the men's room. You know, if you're dancing on the floor, you don't have to dance. You just walk to the men's room. I says, hey, he's playing it too fast. So I got dressed, went out in the backyard, made the thing, took it down to Capitol and gave it to him. Forgot about it. And when Mary and I went to New York from the New Lawrence, uh-huh. the thing came out and it was a hit. Mary and I didn't have, we didn't have a radio. We were broke. Oh. And we're in New York making How High the Moon and did not know that Nola was number one, that it was a hit song. Wow. Hmm. It's a crazy world. Yeah, it is. It is crazy. (laughs) What do you think after a night like tonight? Now, we saw you over at the House of Blues and uh, you did two sets. The first set was was you and your group. What a great group you've got. Oh, thank you. Good. Good people. But what do you think after a night like tonight? Here you are, Slash comes out on stage to work with you, uh, some other people come out. He's sure different, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he come out, stripped to the waist with his hat on, on the last half of the show. Oh, he was terrific. Yeah. They all were terrific. Yeah. They, just, it turned out very good, the second part. The first mm-hmm. part, we struggled around a little bit. Oh, first what part was think, wonderful. What do I think about the House of Blues? Oh, I, I an mean, experience just, like when tonight. you do an experience like yeah. tonight, what do you think about that? I think I'm, I'm the most lucky guy in the world to put in 81 years and go out of the business like I went into the business. A very lucky guy. Hmm. When I was here in 1929, when this was Sam and Henry at WGN, mm-hmm. there's a few of us out there probably mm-hmm. remember that. Mm-hmm. But what a great thing that is to be here at the beginning of jazz in yeah. Chicago with the Art Tatums, with the Roy Eldridge's, and all those great, great, wonderful players. Mm-hmm. And when I came to Chicago, there wasn't one electric guitar player, no jazz players, so the guitar was nothing. And when I came here, 
and had to make up an electric guitar, I went over to Bell and Howe and asked if I could get one half of the projector. Didn't want the projector, just wanted the amplifier with that long hose on it. <laughs> I says, give me that thing with the box with the handle and the speaker. And when I told them what I was going to do with it, they gave it to me. Bell and Howe, here in Chicago. Huh. That's how I started. Then you go back in your, your hotel room and you start tinkering. Because oh. your, your mind, I mean, your mind is, it's amazing. You, you knew this would work, right? I didn't know anything would work. <laughs> and you know why I invented these things? is because you couldn't go over to Guitar Center and buy one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you can't buy it, why you invent it or make it? Right. It's survival. Huh. So it, there wasn't a multi-track machine, so you invent one. Was an electric guitar, so I'll make one. Yeah. <laughs> and when I walked to Gibson, which was in Chicago, right? Okay, and uh, I went to the Gibson people with this log, with some strings on it, a four by four log, and says, "Here's the way it should be done." You're not kidding. It really was a log, it was right? You still got that? Yeah, don't you? I got it. I oh, got it. And, and they labeled me the character with the broomstick and the pickups on it, and they laughed at me for ten years, <laughs> and finally called me and says, "Hey." Come in here with that thing. Let's do something with it. And if it wasn't for Leo Fender in my backyard saying, unless you're going to do something with that log, I said, I'm going to wait for Gibson. He didn't. Mm-hmm. And he rattled their cage. Then they called me and said, hey, you want to come in here and do something with your guitar? How, how much did that weigh? It weighs a ton. That's why my back, that's oh, why I'm going bad. to the Mayo Clinic. Really? They told me, get rid of your guitar. <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. I'm kidding you. You better be <laughs> kidding. kidding. You. you better be kidding. I am. Oh, oh my like God. an amputation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 Some guy just People jumping out of windows. No, I, if you listen to the show tonight with Slash and everything, it was wonderful the fact that you could hit one note and you could go out and eat and come back and it's still playing. <laughs> Sax player can't do it. The piano player can't do it. You got to get a plank of wood that makes it talk like that. Right. And that's what that's all about. Yes, I'm very, very, very touched by going over, not titch, touched, <laughs> to go over to the House of Blues. It is something. It is probably the most rewarding thing that you can think of, you know. It amazes me, too. This is the first time, other than seeing you on TV uh, or watching uh, videos of your appearances at Fat Tuesdays, this is the first time I've ever seen you perform live. And, And this was a night I would not have missed for anything. What amazed me is you still seem to be enthusiastic. How many thousands of times have you played How High the Moon, and yet tonight when you're doing it, you're still throwing some fresh stuff in there. But, yeah, you don't play it the same. Mm-hmm. David Merrick asked me if I'd do a show on Broadway, Hello, Dolly. Mm-hmm. And I says, David, in all fairness, I don't want to do it because I'd be changing it every show. <laughs> and so if you play the same, you don't improve. Mm-hmm. And if you're out looking and searching, you try something different. You feel different. You don't feel the same every time. So why should you do it the same way? So you create something new. Sometimes it's not as good. Well, then you mm-hmm. don't do that again, right? But you do improve. So when you go out, do you have a, a particular song that helps you read the audience? Or do you just say, I'm going to yes. dive in with both feet and see what feels right? You dive in, and if it don't stick on the wall, you change it in a hurry. <laughs> so when I go out and throw a line or play something, and there's not a response to it, I say, well, I won't go there again. Uh-huh. right? And so you're constantly feeding... Let me give you an example. In Chicago, at the Blue Note, I said to Mary, we got a problem. 
we're great on Mondays. We're pretty good on Tuesdays. Wednesday, well, fair. Thursday is a maid's night out. They're coming down from Evanston. I said, this is no night for anybody. Friday, they start preparing to get drunk. Saturday night, guy says to the old lady, yeah, let's go out. Let's go out, you know. And he just hangs it on, talks, argues, whatever it is. You can't control Saturday night at all. Mm -hmm. So I said, Mary, Monday night, you got Ella Fitzgerald. You got Benny Goodman in the audience. They're a piece of cake. But Tuesday night, they got the waiters and the bartenders on Tuesday. But Wednesday, it starts getting difficult and gets worse. Huh. So you got to play for Monday and Saturday, something that fits both Monday and Saturday. And that's tough. Mm -hmm. So when you play How High the Moon, said to Mary, let's go. So when we're in Terre Haute, Indiana, it's as great any night of the week. So in Terre Haute, Indiana, in Chicago, Rock Island, Illinois, New York at the Paramount, it's the same. It, you get them on Mondays, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, mm. Saturday. That's the key. Yeah. And there you have to read your audience. We were talking, though, off the air less about reading your audience tonight. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful to look around and see that, in fact, you have your 20-somethings all the way up to your, you name it, responding to, for example, How High the Moon. Yeah. That, that's just that's a great feeling. I mean, you feel the buzz in the audience. They're plugged into you when they hear songs like this, and you think, well, okay, then this is working. This is, you know, no generation. This is yeah. working. But you see, Perry Como doesn't have that. And I was very fortunate that I invented the guitar, created the solid-body electric guitar that did these things with the, the engineers, the fellow in the control room, I know Les Paul because he did this and this and this. The echo is a delay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These things are something that a person like Perry Como, someone like that, doesn't have. They don't have the things to lean on mm -hmm. to bridge the gap. The kid today, 15 years old, he says, Les Paul, yeah, I know him. Mm -hmm. But he only knows me as a guitar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But then he says, oh, he's a guy, is he? Well, you know, so Perry can't, you know, he doesn't have a Perry Como guitar. Gotcha. So. <laughs> That's a, a little bit of a, and we'll let you hear more of that. Uh, we've got a lot to, to play for you of some of the conversations we had over the past 18 years with Les Paul. What's your favorite guitar? Because there are, there are Les Paul Customs, Les Paul Recording Guitar. There are all kinds of Les Paul Guitars. How do guitars. you know that? You play guitar? Yes, oh. I play guitar. Well, of course. Yes. That's the whole world is one guitar now. Don't you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I, my mother said when I was a little kid, I started to play the piano. And my mother says, I don't think so. I says, why not, Mom? She says, you got your back turned to the people. So I said, well, I'll play the saxophone. She says, now you got your, something in your mouth. You can't sing. You can't talk. So the harmonica went on. Then I said, I'll get a drum. Not in this house you won't bring a drum. Right? <laughs> so finally I went to a guitar. She says, now you're talking. Now you got it. From Sears, I got the guitar, and I opened it. And as I got it out of the carton, one string caught in the cardboard. It went, dang. Mother says, you're great already. <laughs> I was on my way. And Mother says, no matter what you do, you sound great when you play the guitar. Try it on the violin. You want to kill the kid. He's practicing for five years on a violin. You can't stand him. 
If he plays a clarinet, it's it's rough. You play a guitar, it's great no matter what you do. Yeah. So the guitar has that magic. But do you have a favorite out of all your Les Paul guitars? Is there one that you... No. Really? No. Okay. No, I just... Uh, the one I play is... Uh, happens to be one I like. Mm -hmm. I play it now, but tomorrow I'll pick up another one in 10 minutes. And I love it. You, you have a gift, too, uh, that that is a rare thing among instrumentalists. When we were watching you on stage tonight... You have a wonderful sense of humor. We've known that from our conversations with you, but we saw it on stage tonight. But your sense of humor is able to come through through your guitar, yeah. too. That's that right. you got to say it with your hands. Yeah. Exactly. When that guitar laughs, I mean, everybody else laughs. And you make it cry, too. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. When a person comes in your audience, you see them with tears in their eyes, then you know that you're saying the right thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's terribly important what you can say with your head and your hands. And the the more you play the guitar, the more you use your head instead of your hands. You only need to say one thing, one note. Louis Armstrong proved it. I count Basie proved it, mm -hmm. and the Tommy Dorsey's proved it. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is hit one note, and if it's the right note. But how many notes can you pick to put there that are wrong? <laughs> it's terribly important to play the right note. When you go over the House of Blues to play the blues, they don't play a million notes. Play mm -hmm. one note, and it's the right note. Mm. Yeah. That is the most important part of it. Steve King and Johnny Putman at Chicago's WGN Radio 720, where... We're spending the entire show tonight uh, remembering Les Paul. Uh, we've had the good fortune to uh, talk with a lot of a lot of people tonight who worked with Les, uh, who uh, jammed on stage with him, uh, and we've got uh, roughly 18 years worth of conversations that we had with Les. That uh, Dan Chagrew, our producer, was nice enough to to go through and. And we want to uh, share parts of those mm -hmm. with you tonight, too. There were so many, sadly, there were so many times that we would call Les and, and someone's passing would have been in the news. And uh, I'll never forget the night we talked about the passing of Gene Autry. He loved Gene Autry. One of my favorite stories is Les talking about uh, being a kid and loving Gene Autry, not only as a cowboy, not only as a film star, but as a guitarist, as a performer. And Gene came to Waukesha to perform, and Les was a little boy, and the age difference was such that um, Gene was already an established star, and Les was just a kid. And he went to see him, I think it was a matinee, he went to see Gene Autry with a buddy, and he, he even remembered the kid's name that was with him. And they took a flashlight along with them because there was a chord that Gene Autry would play that Les could not master. So he had a paper and a pencil and a flashlight. And when Gene would play that particular chord, the flashlight would go on and Les would jot down the chord. And I guess this went on enough times that Gene Autry, from the stage wanted to know what was going on down there. I keep seeing a light flashing. And Les said that was the first time he met Gene Autry, and they became 
very close friends. Yeah, they did. And that was a tough night after Gene had passed away for Les to talk uh, about his friend. And I remember clearly he said, I've talked about so many friends who've died. And I, subsequently we had him on the radio talking about you know, the, the passing of Chet Atkins and people who were, you know, r- really mm-hmm. genuine friends. And, and we were always amazed at some of the people that he'd had the chance to, to come in contact with. Um, that we talked with him uh, the night Harry Carey died. And, and, and we didn't had, know that they were yeah. friends. We just figured since Harry Carey had been in Chicago and and Les had been in Chicago and we'd already we had the the interview with Les scheduled and boy he just uh, he blew us away when he said you know back when I was hanging with Harry we said what you were hanging with Harry and he proceeded to tell us wonderful stories Les Paul and Harry Carey Harry Carey was a very dear friend of mine huh. and Russ Hodges uh, Russ and and, and uh, uh, Harry, uh, we went to WIND and Gary on New Year's, and we went to go out and on a good drunk. That's what we wanted to do, <laughs> and we were heading uh, to Gary, which we did. We got to Gary, uh, and and Russ Hodges had a date. We was uh, she said, uh, "I'll be waiting on the corner by the bank," and so Harry, uh, I mean Russ, didn't know what she looked like, but he had a blind date. And she was standing there by the bank, and we told her I'd be in my yellow Packard. And and, and so when we drove and she saw us, she waved. And when she waved, her pants fell down. (laughs) (laughs) And her pants, she stepped out of them, put them in in her pocketbook, jumped in the car, and away we went. (laughs) And I'll never forget that New Year's. I bet you won't. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Anyway, that night, we had to go back because we had to open up uh, at the WJJD the next morning. IND and JJD were married. Uh, Atlas owned both stations. Uh-huh. And uh, on the way home, there was a wigwag going, and the snow was coming down, and it was a mess. A time out. What is a wigwag? Wig well, that's where it tells you don't cross because it's, oh. a, it's a sign telling you there's a train coming through. Oh, okay. okay. So you could All sit those. forever. Yeah, we could. Oh, okay. But, and we waited at that wigwag, and finally one of us decided, where in the devil is that train? So they come back in the car and said, it's way down the line. So I said, why don't we go down there? And tell them, stupid, back that thing up or something so the wigwag isn't messing us up. We were annoyed at this, and so we we drove down about a, a half a mile, and there was a train, or a quarter of a mile, whatever it was. But there was no one in it. And there was a hole in the fence and some tracks going across over to the dew drop-in. Mm-hmm. And the two guys were getting their snort. And so I says, let's move this train. <laughs> so Russ says, well, you're joking. No. So Harry says, well, I'll follow you in the car. Mm-hmm. So Harry was driving the car, and we backed the train up. <laughs> and I knew how to drive a train because I was born and raised right there on the railroad track. Mm-hmm. And my godfather was an engineer. <laughs> so he put me in the train and went along with the fireman and... I knew how to start and back a train up. 
So I backed the train up for about a half a mile. <laughs> and then we got in the car and we drove on home. <laughs> and we thought of it so often. Whenever we'd meet, we'd talk about that train, oh. moving that train. Oh, Can you funny. imagine those two guys coming no. out and say someone stole our train? I'm wondering if they ever had another drink after that night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Les Paul. <laughs> Hearing that story again, one of the things that tickles me is, well, sure, I know how to drive a train. Yeah. <laughs> what? You knew how to drive a train? Yeah. And again, none of this was scripted. We didn't call him in advance and yeah. say, no, we're going to talk about Harry Carey. So when you hear him tell a tale, it's off the top of his head. He starts naming names, people, 50, 60 years before. Just priceless moments. So. Uh, I I repeat myself when I say how fortunate we are that we uh, had the opportunity to get him on the show. Yeah, and he felt comfortable enough to talk. I wonder if he ever felt uncomfortable talking, <laughs> because he just loved telling a story, and he knew he had a great audience, and yeah. he knew Chicago loved him too. And, uh, and and again, he certainly knew how to embellish a story. <laughs> But there were enough times when we'd zero in on something, yep. and he wasn't kidding. Yep, he actually did whatever it was yep. that he just uh, told us this wonderful outlandish story about. And we just shake our heads and say, "Look at that! The facts prove it out." Uh, and and he he just, you know. We talked earlier about famous people that he knew and his love of, of Gene Autry and Bing Crosby and. Steve, you can recall the night that I, I I didn't know that, you know, he would have known Judy Garland. Yeah. And I was just floored when he just casually mentioned that he uh, went to the airport to pick up Judy Garland. And I said, whoa, whoa, the Judy Garland? Well, of course, Judy Garland. He said, to this day, I so clearly recall Judy stepping off the plane and... Uh, he started talking about the dress that she was wearing, the polka dot dress and the hat with the band of the hat that matched the polka dots and the dress and how adorable she was. And I thought, wow, it was like he took a little picture mm-hmm. and it just went in this album in his head and he was able to just call it up at will. It was incredible. There was another night that is one of those that will uh, will stay on our mind for a long time. Les was a huge fan of Paul Harvey. Because his mother loved Paul Harvey. His mother, who lived to be over 100 years old, never missed Paul Harvey on the radio. And so and, he learned to love Paul through his mother. And used to listen to mm-hmm. to Paul Harvey uh, every day at noon in Mawa, New Jersey. Lying in bed, sleep in the morning, wake up, listen to Paul Harvey, go back to sleep. And Paul Harvey as he would be driving into work, would occasionally hear our conversations with Les. And this is what happened one night. You know how you were just talking about uh, Paul Harvey? Yep. Les, say good morning to Paul Harvey. You're kidding. Good morning, American. (laughs) Oh, oh my goodness. You're my favorite. Oh, dear Les. You're my favorite. You have been a star to steer by for such a long time. 
Well, Paul, I, I think you heard us say that today is a big day for Les because he's releasing his new rock and roll album today. We're going to get you a copy of that album. Oh, oh thank you. I've been sitting here making notes. <laughs> well, now, I listened to you, and here's the rest of the story. <laughs> In fact, i got to tell you, um, Mr. Harvey, um, it was, I think, about a week ago you had mentioned Les in one of your um, noon reports. And Les, didn't I happen to call you just as you woke up to that? And you said, isn't that a weird feeling when your radio comes on and you wake up and you hear your name and it's being said by Paul Harvey? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've got to mention this new album today. Oh, how nice. <laughs> First in 27 years, we've wasted a lot of years there. <laughs> Absolutely and right. And Mr. Harvey, the next one's going to be country and then bluegrass and jazz and blues. and. Oh, man. He's only getting started. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you're terribly busy. Thank you so much for stopping by. Well, thank you all. And let, thank you, Paul. as the politicians say, many happy returns. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> bye, bye Mr. You, Harvey. Paul. That's, you know, after all these years, Les, we still have to call him Mr. Harvey. It's just, uh, oh my he is goodness. such I a special I'm man. I guess I'm the only one to get away with it. Right? <laughs> and they had such a, a wonderful mutual admiration society. The, the album we were talking about was Les Paul, American Made, World Played, which was Les's first rock and roll album when he was 90, the album that he went on to win uh, a couple Grammys for. Yeah. And... A couple of years ago, when uh, there was the wonderful Les Paul homecoming in Wisconsin. In Waukesha. And we had a surprise for Les. Uh, when we were privileged to be a part of the show that night with Les. And we contacted Paul Harvey. He wanted to be there, but he, he couldn't be there. But he recorded a special introduction. That he wrote, which was brilliant. Oh, and I think everyone could hear in Les's voice when Paul Harvey was on the phone that he was just—he was awestruck. He was just kind of kind of giddy about the the whole thing. And subsequently, uh, when he celebrated uh, big birthdays, uh, Paul Harvey was so so nice to to yeah. mention him uh, in uh, the noon show, knowing that that Les would be listening to him. But I remember. Uh, when we were up in Waukesha and when we surprised Les with that, that recording of Paul Harvey, yeah. uh, he was just about speechless. Well, and, and for Les Paul to be speechless was a rare thing. We were introducing him, so he was making right. his way to the stage. And I'll never forget when he heard Paul Harvey's voice, because in our, our introduction to uh, Les, we had this, this uh, recording. He stopped in the middle of the ballroom. And he, he just stopped, and he kind of looked up, as people will do when they're listening. And he, he looked up, and I thought, wow. And he waited until the recording was done before he continued walking up to the stage. And he just looked at us, and, and he mouthed, thank you, thank you. Yeah. It was really, really sweet. Yeah, there, there was a, a real mutual admiration society. I like to think, you know, forgive me for this, but I like to think of them together 
finally meeting and sharing notes and kibitzing and because they both had so much in common in that they had this love for life. They were so inquisitive. They were consummate professionals, mm-hmm. great storytellers. And yeah, I, in my head, I always imagined just the two of them having an opportunity to just sit down and, you know, have a, have a glass of wine, a cold beer, a cup of coffee, just something so they could just chat with each other. Do your own inventions ever sometimes bother you? And by that I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you took the time to work. You know how to play. You invented uh, the the echoes and, and all this sort of stuff. Today, the average kid off the street can go in and can get a lot of this stuff. And, and, abuse, and abuse it. Abuse it and not really know how to play. That's Does okay. that bother you? No. Okay. Not at all. Any more than when Slash breaks my guitar up. <laughs> they says, what do you think about that? I says, great, I'll sell them another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we can't lose, can we? <laughs> Keep breaking no, them, buddy. No, I don't, I don't feel, I feel it's great that the youngster can do better than I had when I sent the Sears and Roebuck. He can go down and buy a very fine guitar today, mm. and he can learn from the other people out there today to play correctly. Hmm. And he learned so fast and so proper, the correct way. When I was a kid, they didn't have a guitar pick, so I'd break the last key off the piano. No. And that's what I filed down for a pick. I didn't have one. Oh. Just the ivory from the Just last pick? Just the ivory from the last pick. Add that yeah. to the list of things that he's yeah. invented, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I think we overlook that. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so your mind was always, I mean, even as a kid, it was in a place that, that other kids' minds didn't go, obviously. Well, yeah, my, my brother didn't. My brother says, the nuts at it again. <laughs> Ma, he just took the telephone apart. And she says, he'll put it back together again. She was a, a really cool mom. Huh? Oh, she was yeah. cool. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she, she'd sit down. I was telling him tonight at, at the dinner table. I says, now that I look back at it, Mother just played a little piano, and she played the blues. Uh-huh. Hmm. And so it was in the family. Yeah. Did, did your dad played anything? My dad just would go out on a drunk and then a gambling thing. He'd come home with a trombone, open the window, and let the slide go right out in a snowbank, throw the whole horn out, and go to bed. Right? And he says, son, I'd have been a great violinist, but my fingers were too small. You know. Oh, golly. <laughs> well, was there anything... Any idea you had, something you wanted to invent, that you couldn't invent? Yeah. What? The the electric guitar. <laughs> I couldn't. I still haven't got it the way I'd like to have it. No. Yep. What, yep. what don't you like about it? Well, as soon as you put a pickup under the string, yeah. you're limited to where you place the pickup. And that string is vibrating, and you're only picking up part of it. Okay. Okay. And you want to take the whole pie and then take what you want from the whole pie. But if you don't have the whole pie and you're taking something from it, you're taking something that's not complete yet. So if I had my wishes, my wannas, I'd want to have something that was the whole pie, the whole, everything that's happening on that string. And then take out what I don't want or exaggerate, uh, 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 equalize it to the sounds that I would like to have. 
in other words, distort the sound in, in a nice way. Distortion doesn't mean bad. Mm -hmm. EQ on this mic mm -hmm. isn't necessarily bad. It makes it sound better. Why do I get the feeling you're, you're, you're ultimately going to invent a laser pickup? <laughs> oh, I went through that already. Oh, gee, oh. okay. Never Sorry mind. Me. Oh, Been there, done that. I, <laughs> I went through that so heavy. Just like uh, I gave a lecture in 1954 uh, for the Audio Engineering Society. My belief was they were on the wrong track with a tape machine and a desk recorder. And what they should have is something they put in their pocket and nothing moves. It's here. Mm -hmm. And so now, as you know, you can get a Casio player and you can play Mary Had a Little Lamb. Push the button, play it back. Nothing moving. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we know it's here. We just have to com keep completing that, that, that idea hmm. that nothing moves. And when I made the very first disc recorder here in Chicago... I had a big flywheel on it from mm -hmm. a car, and it was barbaric, but it worked. It was an old Cadillac flywheel? An old Cadillac flywheel. My dad was in the garage business, so I went to him, and I said, Dad, i got to make a turntable. He says, what's that? <laughs> to play a record on. So I told him what it has to be dynamically balanced. He says, Nibs, go out in the alley and do a hysterectomy on one of those old cars. <laughs> Take the flywheel out, that's all, you know. So I did. That's where the idea came from. What's your favorite invention that you didn't invent? Oh, I would say everything that Edison did. I, I, I just absolutely, I had the pleasure of going over many times uh, to perform there and do things and record mm -hmm. on his original machine really? cylinder cylinder machine mm -hmm. with an electric guitar mm. that's wow. a no-no do you right? think he was rolling over oh he fell <laughs> over that one but there is a man if you think the electric light yeah the motion picture the phonograph when you think of the things this man did yes but Les, you're in his company you're in the inventors hall of fame with him well many people out there probably say so that's the guy that putting this angry music out, right? <laughs> oh, boy. They say that guitar is driving me nuts. But that was was quite a kick for you to be recognized that way, wasn't oh, it? Oh, boy. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's the ultimate for them to say, uh, hello, Mr. Inventor, sir. We're going to put you in the same category with this guy named Edison. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I'm very uncomfortable to be even yeah. in his class. But uh, well, when, they, when they want to put a stamp out on you, then you can feel uncomfortable. But yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go for the Les, Les Paul stamp. <laughs> yes. Hey, we, we helped do it. We just got a call from, we had uh, Sarah Karloff, Boris Karloff's uh, daughter on with us. Really? And we had... Uh, Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney Jr.'s grandson. grandson. His name is Ron Chaney. We talked with them about a stamp campaign, and uh, it's just happened. Uh, they've just announced that they're going to have stamps with them on it. So we I did a we letter-writing campaign. We know? have to start a Les Paul stamp campaign. <laughs> yeah, well, it's better than Peter Lorre. Where's Peter Lorre? You don't have him on a stamp. <laughs> Oh, well, you guys dream a lot, don't you? Well, you sure, know, in the middle not? of the night, we just kind of hang out here together and get in trouble every now and then. And uh, yeah. we're very fortunate, too. I, you uh, sure are. Because we get to work together. And I know this is, is something that we've talked about in the past. The, the, uh, the, the times that people will say to you, for example, when you were working with Mary, how can you be together all the time? That's what Jack Parr asks. Yeah. He says, hey, how can you guys be together? And in some ways, it, you will burn out. And so when you work, 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 
And that's one of the difficult things when you hit it big. Mm -hmm. When you got a line in Chicago for blocks to get mm -hmm. into the Chicago Theater, you're breaking all records, and your records are number one, and you, you're on for Listerine every day, <laughs> and, and, and you're guests on the Sullivan Show, and everything is happening. Uh, you can burn out. It can change you. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. and money can change you. Yeah. So, Steve, no money. We don't get big. Huh. All right? Oh, okay. Let's just kind of stay here in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you said that in, in the notes, uh, again, that you put in the, in the wonderful book that's with your, your box set. That it that that's really what stopped you yep. having hit records that you were doing too many things too at the many. same time. Yeah, if yeah. you're inventing, if if you're in the process of inventing something and you're going to do the Sullivan Show and you say I can't do the Sullivan Show, Bing would call up and he'd say, Hey, Les, we've asked you five times. Why don't you come on the show? Hmm. Well, I'm busy. I'm locked in my garage oh. inventing a new sound. What in the, what in the world's a new sound? And you know how that came about as quick as I can. My mom came down, I was at the Oriental Theater with the Andrews Sisters, 1946. She said, Lester, I heard you last night on the air, you played great. I said, Mom, I wasn't on the air, I was with the Andrews Sisters at the Oriental Theater. She says, you mean that was somebody else? She says, you better do something about it. I said, what can I do if someone plays like me? Well, she says, if I can't tell you from the other guy, then you're, you better do something about it. I thought about it, said to the Andrews sisters, I'm going to do the thing with Bugsy Siegel at the Flamingo, hmm. and then I'm going to jump ship and go home. And I went home, locked myself in a garage, says, I'm not going to come out of here until I got a sound that my mother can tell from everybody else. <laughs> and I stayed in that garage. Bing says, you ever going to come out of that garage? I says, not until I get that sound. And I went to Capitol Records, and I had that sound. And they said, what are we going to call it? I said, call it the new sound. And so that's how that came about. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you had motivation. Yep. And <sighs> turns down, uh, uh, turned down, Decca says, I don't think so. Yeah. This is the novelty, one time around the block. Mm -hmm. hmm. I named the, the Chipmunks and, and made that first record for David Seville. What? The Chipmunks, yeah. That's where it came from me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> An accident. I went out to buy some property at Sunset and La Brea, and I went over to my friend. You won't believe this, but it's true. I said, Howie, I says, wait till you see what I bought. And I took him over and I showed him that I bought a half a block at Sunset and La Brea. So I says, it didn't seem to impress you very much. And a short time later, my, son, uh, my uh, friend Vern came over, and he says, uh, what are you doing with... Uh, with Howard Hughes. He says, what do you mean, Howard Hughes? He says, that's your friend Howie. Oh. <laughs> I took him over to show him the property I bought, and he wasn't impressed, right? Whoops. Whoa. So How Howard Hughes says, Howie. what are you doing? And I says, well, I can't sleep because of that property across the street. I'm looking at it, and I'm going crazy. I never had anything like this. So we're sitting there eating a hamburger, and I says, what's that red light up there? He says, I don't know. Let's walk over and see. So we got our hamburgers, and we walk over, and a block up from La Brea and Sunset, there's a studio. It says Liberty Records. We climb the fire escape, and I knock on the door. The guy says, what do you want? And I says, well, my name is Les Paul. He says, the Les Paul? Well, I says, you're going to get us in? <laughs> so we went in, 
and and here's David Seville, and they're working on a recording. And they says, we don't know what to do with it, Les. And I says, why don't you try it and speed it up? And I'll go over and get my guitar. I says, it's in the motel, oh. the Sahara Motel. And I got the thing, went back with him, and recorded the first chipmunk thing for him. No mm. kidding. And then gave him the idea, and he was forever grateful. And that's how it happened. The rest is history, yeah. sure. Wow. It was an accident. It was an accident. Mm. That is wild. It's a great story. Let me say thank you again to the guy that is sitting in the studio with us, uh, Les Paul, who put on an extraordinary show over at the House of Blues and then was nice enough to come on over to the radio station and hang out with us. And I think it's uh, it's the goodies that Johnny made that is keeping him in the studio. <laughs> it's sure helping, I'll tell you that. It's very good. You know, we never I thought to ask you, when was the last time you were in Chicago, Les? It's been a long time. I've been back here to do a NAM show or back here to do a guest. Uh, I, in fact, the last one I did was uh, a disc jockey thing on WIND. Is that right? For a week. To replace uh, That's right. Miller. Wow. Howard, Howard Miller. Howard Miller, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, we were both over at WIND, and that station changed formats before we got Oh, my, this has been well, 20 years married, ago. So it's been a long time since you've it's been, been here. They were wow. in the Wrigley building. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, well, WIND. Right. Yeah, because they had moved when we were working with them. They uh, had yep. moved about three blocks down the street here. Yeah. That's wow. the last time. Yeah. Uh, Ralph Atlas called me uh, in Jersey, and he said, uh, would you come back less than do a week as a disc jockey? I says, I don't know. He says, yeah, come on back. We'll go out to the racetrack. We'll fool around. You know? <laughs> and so I took over the show. And when I did, uh, at that time, I had the commercials for Robert Hall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first commercials I had to do was Carson uh, Perry Scott, you know. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I got in trouble real quick. Uh, I wasn't on an hour as a DJ for Howard when I said, if you have a chance on Sunday, why don't you go down to Carson Perry Scott and you'll see trucks after trucks coming in Sunday at night. And they're bringing in Robert Hall suits. <laughs> and they're busy picking out the labels, the Robert Hall labels, and putting in Carson Perry Scott in there. Said, Just don't get caught in the rain with that suit or you're dead. Well, the manager of WIND called up and says, you're fired. As right now, you're fired. Oh, no. So I says, well, I'm going over. What is it, Old Town? Yeah. 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 So I go over to Old Town. I says, well, it's time for me to get drunk. I just got fired. <laughs> so I'm over there, and finally they found me. And Ralph Atlas is going up and down the streets, running around there, trying to find out where having people run in every tavern to find me. And when he found me, when they found me, he come out and he says, Ralph called up and says, it's, oh, Carson Perry Scott, the president, called up and says, that's great. <gasps> and he loved it. And I got hired back. Oh, no. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. And so it's Ralph, also unheard of. <laughs> oh, yeah. For me to start doing prank things, it was, yeah. it was not good. You know, we've talked a lot about, about your music. But I think, to conservatively, you could be described as a free spirit. Oh, <laughs> where did forget the music? Where did where did you get this whole free spirit I attitude know. from? I don't know. Mary, Mary, and I were coming back from Hershey Park, and I'm driving up the New Jersey Turnpike, and I make a mistake, 
And I get off, and I'm going toward Bayonne. And uh, Mary says, what are those lights? And I realize it's a Statue of Liberty. So I says, oh, that's a new nightclub <laughs> that just opened up over there. I says, one of these days, remind me, I'll take you over there. She says, oh, and that was the end of it. Now, at the first turn I can, I made and got back on the turnpike, and I didn't say anything to Mary. And so Rheingold Beer was having a big thing, and we were at the Hampshire house discussing how we're going to launch this whole campaign. And uh, Capitol Records was there. A lot of women were there. And so we said, we're going to be working two, three days on this thing to iron everything out. And uh, they said, President of Capitol says, why don't, uh, Mary, why don't you take the gals and show them around New York? So Mary says, okay. And so she says, well, maybe I ought to call up and find out where the Statue of Liberty is. And they says, what do you mean? One of the people at the desk. She said, well, you know, they move it around the summer months. Les was telling me that the Statue of Liberty, they, they move it. They tow it around. And she says, I'd like to find out just where it is. Well, they looked at her like she would. And Mary says, you did. I says, yeah, I did. Oh, <laughs> yeah, devil. Yeah. That's, I, 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 I screwed the story up. The way it was. And I says it was a nightclub, and then Mary says, no, that's a Statue of Liberty. And I says, what month is it? That's the way it went. That's okay. Because they're moving it around. And, yeah, and I says, well, that's because they tow it around during the summer months. That was it. I screwed it up. I, it works either I, way. I think I'm getting tired. That's you what are. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to tell a story. You teased everybody before 3 o'clock about learning this particular chord. Well, I learned uh, the E chord. You yeah. said back in Waukesha, I only knew a couple of chords on the guitar, and this friend of mine, Harold, I said to him, "Hey, your old man's got a guitar." He says, "Yeah, but he don't want us to play it or anything." And I says, "Well, when he goes to work, why don't we just get it out and look around and see if we can find a third change in Darktown Strutter's Ball?" I said, "I keep craving that chord, and I don't know it." He says, okay. So he went over there, and his father was putting these big boots on to go into the malted food company where he cleaned the vats out and things. So he had these big rubber boots on, all the way up to his hips. Hip boots, I guess mm -hmm. he called them, yeah. So <clears throat> we said, could we play the guitar? He says, no, don't touch it. So we waited until he left. When he left, we saw that he was gone, you know, walking to work. So we dashed into the closet, got the guitar out, and we're looking for that chord. I'm playing the piano, and, and Harold's trying to find it on the guitar, and we're just, we're going to find it. So we're looking for it, and we see these hip boots. The old man came back. So he took the guitar out of our hands, and he says, you're not going to get that chord. It's mine. <laughs> So he tossed us out of the house. So we're out there with our swimming trunks, and we're walking away from the house, and says, I know that cord is there. But he says, you know, Dad. And I looked around. I says, you don't think. He says, he may have. There's smoke. It's July or August. Smoke coming out the chimney. We ran back to the basement. Father burned the guitar. <sighs> He oh, says, no. you're not going to get that cord. 
Oh. Wow. That's a heavy one. Yeah. Wow. He played that chord. We knew it was there, but we didn't mm -hmm. We didn't know where it was. That's weird. We wanted that chord. He yeah. says, you're not going to get it. And he burned the guitar. So how many years was it before you got it? <laughs> <laughs> Gene Autry come to town and he played it. And I'm in the front row, and every time he'd play that chord, I'd go to write it down. My kid, my friend had a flashlight, Claude, and I'd put a dot there, and then i have to wait again. And while I was writing those things down, he says, Gene Autry says, wait a minute. He says, every time I hit that chord, a light goes on in the theater. <laughs> he, and he hit the thing, I'm immediately writing it down, and Claude <laughs> says, I think we're on the air. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean? He says, Gene Autry's talking about you. So Gene Autry says, what are you doing down there? And I said, I'm trying to learn that chord. So he said, come up on the stage. Mm -hmm. Went up on the stage, and he says, do you play? And I said, a little. So he handed me the guitar. And I played, and of course, in my hometown, they're going to applaud. And that's how I got started. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> played in my hometown at the theater. Gene Audrey asked me up on the stage. Did you ever uh, perform for any length of time with any other female singers before Mary? Oh, K-Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Connie Boswell. Did you ever, uh, like a Doris Day? Dinah Shore. Dinah Doris Shore? Day, yeah, absolutely. Doris Day. Oh, many. Yeah, I thought Doris And Day. in the armed forces, that was my job. Yeah. I was the third person in the armed forces with Meredith Wilson. And when I was inducted in the army, I was going with Glenn Miller. Mm -hmm. And he says, "If would you like to come with the armed forces? And I said, well, sure, I'd love to. He says, you can live right there in Hollywood. I was, of all things lived on the same street in the armed forces. My house was just down the block. Hmm. Huh. Up the block. All I had to do was kick the brake off and coast to work. <laughs> One block away. Wow. In the armed forces, my job was to play for Dinah Shore, Kate Smith, for the Andrews sisters, W.C. Fields. Oh. Uh, and in fact, I made the only records of W.C. Fields, period. The only recordings. Mm -hmm. Played guitar and piano. Hmm. Was he a son of a gun? Oh, he was a yeah. funny, funny was he? guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did these army shows, you know, uh -huh. and they were so great because he'd come in really bombed <laughs> with a coat on a long <laughs> overcoat. We wondered why he had an overcoat. But what, what? In L.A. We don't, we don't uh, Yeah, in L.A. <laughs> why? Oh, we don't know. And he had a saw underneath Huh? And when he was on with Ed Ber Edgar Bergen uh -huh. Bergman, and Charlie McCarthy, yeah, he grabbed him by the neck and <gasps> took the saw out, right? Oh, no. And and I'll tell you right now, Edgar has no sense of humor. <laughs> you don't mess right? with Charlie, uh, not with a saw. <laughs> oh, W.C. Fields was a funny. That's funny like putting guy. a gun to the head yeah. of your child. Yeah. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is strange. Yeah. Oh. He was probably a loose cannon. And this the, may be a, a case of uh, his image was truer than... The armed forces was so interesting because I couldn't get to meet all these people that that walked up to that microphone, the Groucho Marx and all the mm -hmm. great, great people, Gary Cooper. And so <clears throat> I thought of an idea. And I didn't say anything to Meredith or anything. I just took the guitar pick, threw it out by the mic.
And Jack Benny come walking out, looking at his, his script. He looked down, see something shining. He pick it up, and it's a guitar pick. What would you do if you were Jack uh -huh. Benny and you picked up a guitar pick? You look at the guitar player, would you? Uh huh. Mm -hmm. He did. He come over to me. He says, "Is this yours?" And I started talking to Jack Benny, telling him how much I enjoyed him and wanted to meet him for so long. And Meredith kept saying, "Everybody that walks in here ends up talking to Les first. What the hell's he got going, right?" <laughs> <laughs> so Meredith, Meredith, one day he walks in. And up to the podium, and he sees that thing shiny, and he brings it over to me. And he says, is this yours, Les? I says, thank you, Meredith. So a little while later, same thing happens. I throw the pick out. Meredith picks it up again. So I says, you, Meredith, you're screwing me up. I says, how am I going to get to talk to these people if you pick up my pick? Mm -hmm. So he says, is that what you're doing? I said, Yeah. So he says, well, throw the pick out. I don't know this guy either. <laughs> he says, introduce me to him, right? And that's how, that's how I was fishing for that's a great bit. getting the guys to come over and talk to me. Oh, hey, you can also I have meet, to remember that. You can meet the know. girls that way, too. Sure, guys well, at home taking know. notes. I don't know. know if that works. <laughs> but I did work for the dinosaurs, the Kate yeah. Smith. And one time I was late with Kate Smith. And she says, where is that character? And she's cussing me out, and I hear her. And so I said, oh, my goodness, am I going to catch hell for this? So what I did is I went to a candy machine, and I bought four candy bars. And I says, gee, I'm sorry I'm late, Kate, but, Kate, but I says, I was looking all over for some candy bars for you. And she says, how did you know I was dying to get something to eat? <laughs> <laughs> and you I are got one smart guy. Oh, Gosh. But I'm taking notes, you know, I all played, these little gimmicks. I played for so many, mm -hmm. and uh, it was wonderful. Oh, I yes. guess. Yeah. Some of the stories of, of Les Paul. And, uh, and again, we remember him as someone who was not just a, uh, a wonderful inventor, guitar player but always gave you a reason to smile mm -hmm. uh, just had terrific stories and we were saying earlier that we probably have um, the 30 40 hours yeah. worth of conversations with him on the air and it was rare that he ever repeated a story yeah. it's as though he knew that in fact, I think occasionally he'd say, "Well, now once I I did tell you about this." Yeah, he had that that recall that he actually told a story because we would have you know, the three o'clock in the morning and he would just be talking and talking and I thought, "Wow, um, he was in his element." So I had to chuckle in that last piece that we heard where he says, "I think I'm getting tired." And I remember at that time thinking, "No, I don't think so." <laughs> Who makes you cry? Two things. Two, probably two things, like working with Al Jolson, which I did, working with Judy Garland, which mm -hmm. I did. And the things that really get you is when they put you up and then they bring you down. Yeah. And when Al Jolson did his thing and drops to one knee and does Sonny Boy, hmm. boy, I'm telling you, it tears your heart out. And Judy Garland did it with Over the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And that's what you have to do. It's hard to do it at House of Bulls with a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose, after my heart surgery, 
where do I, what do I want to do? And I took a piece of paper and I drew a line down the center, put plus and minus the things I didn't particularly like in my life and the things I really, really loved to do. I was surprised to find I want to play in a little club with intimate people. Don't go to the dressing room, but go with the people mm -hmm. and listen to them and make new friends and keep your old friends. Mm -hmm. Okay, in a small club, I can look them right in the eye. A big club, like the House of Blues, mm -hmm. you're lost. <laughs> so Jimmy Page, when he's playing for 50,000 people, has, or Peter, uh, uh, Eric Clapton, they never know mm -hmm. what their audience is thinking, what they're saying. They're whisked away like Sinatra in a car. They never see their audience. But when you're in a little club, like in New York where we're mm -hmm. at, when Tony Bennett comes down and sits in, they slash, they all come in and love it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Chet Atkins was there a month ago, said, mm -hmm. I'm going to do what you're doing, Les. <laughs> I'm going to get a club down in Nashville and do the <laughs> same thing. And he called me, he says, hey, it works great. Oh, good. So it's like Just a little club where you can get with your friends. Yeah. It's like therapy then. It is. It's, it's not work so much as it is. Johnny, you got it. It makes you feel good. Therapy is the mm -hmm. answer to getting old <laughs> and staying with it. That's therapy. No longer is it a job. Mm -hmm. But I never thought in my life that I was working. I did everything really as fun. No, Even I, when you were struggling and you, you, you know, doggone it, I could be, you know, fill in the blanks. And, and I'll tell you one short story. I was working at the Wrigley Building and over here making $1,000 a week. In 1931. That was big money, that. Tremendous money. Yeah. Whoa. I didn't know what it was to be poor and starving. I said, but I don't want to do country music. I'm going to do jazz. I went up on the north side, okay? I went to work at the Sun Dodgers Rendezvous playing along with a phonograph record and my guitar for $5 a week. I worked with Jackie Gleason at the 5100 Club, uh -huh. made $35 a week, and deliberately starved. <laughs> Not to play jazz, and found out if you want to starve to death, play jazz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You're right. But I learned two things. The Atlas Brothers says, come on back. And I went back as Les Paul and Rhubarb Red. Mm -hmm. Rhubarb Red made the money. And Les Paul enjoyed playing with Art Tatum and all the great players in jazz. And when jazz and, and country and, and uh, blues all hit big now, it's still jazz, you'll starve to death. Country, you can make a fortune. <laughs> and blues, you'll make a living. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. What was the last time you worked at WGN? Uh, worked probably in 1931 with Bob Trendel here, Bob Trendler. Mm -hmm. And I looked in the studios have changed so much. He had enormous studios here. Yeah, big studios. This is considered enormous by it all is? other radio yeah. standards today. Not no 95 yeah. piece band. Yeah, that's so. true. Oh boy, <laughs> and tap dancers and. <laughs> you know what I used? To, excuse me. I used to go when I was playing at the Wrigley Building. They'd say, you got to go over there in 15 minutes, and I'd just take the guitar and walk across the street. Uh -huh. It's mm -hmm. snowing out. I just, I never put it in a case. 
walked from the Wrigley building over here and played the show here and went back over there. Is no. that right? Yep. And it's right across the street. I'm going to... I'm gonna get I something. just imagine people saying, there goes that nut, <laughs> that, oh, that, boy. that rhubarb red guy Les Paul thing walking it across the street. It yeah. Was, those days, I, I cherish. Yeah. Well, you were busy, too. I mean, you, yeah. were, you were hopping. If you if, if For a moment, if people just could try to comprehend when you would walk from over there, you were performing, coming over here, doing a show back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And there was a time when you were doing other radio stations at the same oh, time. Oh, WJJD, WIND, yeah. WCFL. Amazing. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That was when Rudolph Pratt and Sherman were okay. big. Yeah, were, were big, and then Don McNeil and the Breakfast Club, oh. and my singer was uh, was uh, Fran Allison. <gasps> no oh. kidding. Google Fran and Ollie. Oh. She, yeah. she was wonderful. Wasn't she a lovely oh, lady? Oh boy! Yeah. We were very fortunate in in the last years of his life to become uh, uh, pretty close with Burt Tillstrom, and what an amazing well, yeah. man he was. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. we got to know Fran through Burr. What I just did, I just, I just walked to the back of the. Uh, of the studio, and I took a picture off the wall, and one of our engineers, Aubrey, is running through the building grabbing pictures, because we have <laughs> historical pictures of different times at WGN. Now, I don't know, I'm just going to show you these pictures. Oh, Do you my recognize goodness. any of these people? Uh, She's a good-looking gal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't write off. Well, who is it? We I mean, don't know either. I was going to say Fanny Bryce, but I don't think so. See, we don't know either. We were hoping you could tell. I, I know the microphone. It's a double-button carbon mic. I know that. Is that right? And I, <laughs> That's a little bit of our conversation uh, with Les. And, and, and how typical of Les that he would say, oh, yeah, I know the microphone. Microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 